Jesus and for preaching about Jesus. And he's here, and he knows that not only is he in prison, but he's about to die. He knows that his trial's coming, and he is about to, to give his life for being a follower of Jesus. And what's he doing with that time that he has left? He's writing a letter to his churches to encourage them. He's worried about their faith. He's worried about them following Christ, and he wants to use every moment that he can to exhort them to keep following Jesus. I think we could all um, sort of yes and amen how he starts this book. If you read the, the verses before where we picked up, uh, Peter basically says, hey, God, Jesus, through the resurrection, has given us everything we need for godliness. And he, and he tells the Christians, he says, hey, because of this, you should be a people of virtue, and to your virtue, you should add knowledge, and to your knowledge, you should add self-control. To that, you should add steadfastness, and to that, godliness, and to that, brotherly affection. Can we just get an amen that the world could use some more of that? That the world could use just the Christians. If the Christians would just live like that, it'd be a big, big deal, wouldn't it? It'd make things a whole lot better. And Peter says that, that whoever lacks these qualities, so if we're not living this out, what he says in verse 9, he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that they have forgotten, uh, that, actually, that they're blind because they've forgotten that they have been cleansed from their former sins. So what, is Jesus, what does Peter say that the whole world needs to hear? The gospel. He says that Christians who are living this way or, or the lack of these qualities, they need to be reminded of the gospel. It's not a try harder, do better kind of faith. It's not a, man, if I could just get this in. It's a, they need to be reminded of the gospel, and that's what the whole world needs. Some of you are here, and you're Christians, and that's lacking in you, and, and that's what you need to be reminded, that your sins have been forgiven, and that's what we're going to look at today. Some of you are here, and you've, you've never trusted Jesus, and some of you are here begrudgingly like you don't really want to be here, but somebody invited you, and you're skeptical about this faith, and, and sometimes for good reasons, because you've seen Christians that, like Peter says, lack these qualities. Anybody seen a bunch of Christians act like hypocrites, say that they're Christians, follow the, like say that they follow Jesus, but then live really awful lives and say really terrible things and attack each other and cut one another down? So some of you are here because you've seen hypocrisy played out and you've seen the lack of grace, the lack of these qualities in the church. And so you're not quite sure that you believe all of this stuff. You're not quite sure this is real. And, I, and what I invite you to, to do today is to listen to God's word and to hear the testimony of, Jesus, of Peter saying, listen, what? What you need to hear, what you need to know is that this, in spite of how the people of God are living or how the world is living, what we need to hear, what we need to be reminded of is that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. And he does that because he is alive. So that brings us to this passage here. And we're going to focus in on just these few verses where, where Peter really gets down and he has a pastoral tone saying, hey, hey, don't forget that what we told you is not some philosopher's uh, attempt at explaining how the world works. Do you ever wonder, do you ever fear, in moments of doubt, do you ever wonder if the Bible is sort of just one of, you know, the other mythologies and, and things that have been declared in this world? Do you ever wonder if, 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 if man, what, is what we're following really any different than, you know, other religions or Greek mythology and, and that sort of thing? And, and Peter is saying, listen, you, remember, church, this is not just some, like, club that we join, and these are the moral list of, of things that we should do. If you're going to be a part of, of this club, then you should live this way, and, you know, do it when you can, or when you've got the, the pin on representing that club, then you need to make sure you're doing this. You know, that, that Peter's saying, it's not like that. Peter's saying, hey, listen, I didn't come out of some 
office of philosophy or some place in the society where I was given a role to, to explain how the world works. Peter says, I was a, I was a stinking fisherman. Like, the, the stories we're telling Jesus, he says, I didn't follow cleverly devised myths. This is not like that. This is set apart and completely different than those other mythologies, those other world religions where it's an attempt to put together this deal. He says, I'm simply telling you what happened. I am simply telling you a story of how my life was radically changed. He says, we were eyewitnesses to these things to Jesus' majesty. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Listen, Peter's life and his testimony is reminding them, hey, this is a true story that forever changed my life. And, and if you aren't living, if, if you haven't encountered this sort of transformative power, if your life hasn't been changed and you haven't been born again the way that, that Peter has, then, then this let his story stand as a testimony, as a, as a herald to say that you can indeed be changed. You can indeed have new life. And Peter is telling us that that's his story, that he was transformed by the power and the glory and the majesty of this man named Jesus and you can be as well. Peter says, I was eyewitnesses. What is it that Peter saw? What was the majesty that he beheld when he followed Jesus? Was it that Jesus was on a throne full of riches and, and pomp and circumstance? Is that, is that the Jesus that we know? Is that the Jesus that Peter followed? No. Verse 17 tells this, this interesting story. It says, for when he had received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born by him, the majestic, born to him by the majestic glory. This is a crazy story. It says, this is my beloved son whom, with whom I'm well pleased. Now this is, Peter is referencing this story that happened uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Can, kiddos, can you say transfiguration? It's a big word, isn't it? It means that Jesus was turned into this glorious being that, that was clearly, oh, he's not just a human. There's, there's something more to this man. And, and, and he was there with Moses and Elijah. And there's a lot going on in that story that I can't fully unpack. There's a lot of layers and a lot of beauty into what was happening in that story. And it's recorded in the Gospels. But what Peter is saying is, is hey, I was there. And there was this crazy moment. And, and Peter is telling us that story because it serves as this validating stamp on all that God has been doing. Indeed, all that God is doing in Jesus Christ. And so this story is, is where God speaks and says, hey, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is God's answer to a world that is crying out in their suffering. This is God saying, I have sent my best. Do you ever wonder where God is in the suffering of the world? Do you ever watch the news and just want to crawl into the fetal position? Some of you watch the news too much, and it does that. Either it makes you want to, like, curl up and, and uh, you know, suck your thumb, or it makes you, like, want to fight other people, right, another political party or whatever. Like, you just want to take, like, it, it just keeps us wound up and strung up, and they want to keep you coming back. And, and so we can look at the world, and it is indeed broken, and we can wonder, where is God? What is he doing? Why doesn't he do something? And this... Peter says this was his statement. This was his, this was his stamp on this, this person of Jesus saying, I have done something. This is, this is my son. I've sent him. I've heard your cries. I've, I've seen the brokenness of the world, and I've sent the best that heaven has to offer. This is my son. I am well pleased with him. Listen to him. He did do something. God has done something. He has not been ambivalent. He has not been 
unconcerned about the suffering in the world or in your own world. God has heard our cries. He does see our suffering. And indeed, he has moved. He has done something, and his name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't send a political leader to restore some um, you know, earthly kingdom and give some relief from the big government of Rome that day. No, no, he goes even bigger than that. You see, the whole Bible has been moving toward this. That's why Peter records this particular story, because it, it captures the entire movement into the meta narrative of the scriptures. If, if you haven't read the Bible as one big story, it's all about Jesus. Kiddos say, it's all about Jesus. That's right. Even the Old Testament, it's pointing to and telling of the coming of Jesus. Here's the deal. God makes the world, and it's awesome. Like, awesome. You can read about it in Genesis 1 and 2. There's none of the mess that we see on the news that we bemoan happening in that moment. It's amazing. It's perfect. Literally, it's awesome. God makes the world, and it is awesome. But then we get involved. And by we, I mean humans, our first parents. And they decide that they they need to get their hands. We decide we need to get our hands on the wheel. We need to take some control. We reach for what only belongs to God. That is the glory and the control of the world. And we wreck the whole deal. We wreck the whole deal. And now everything that we bemoan on the news begins to seep in and wreck God's good creation. So yeah, God sees his world and he sees what we see and he grieves. He hates it. He hates the sin and what it has done in the world. So much so that in chapter 6 of the Bible, like you don't even get that far in. In chapter 6, he, he does away with the whole thing. He, he kills everybody and everything and starts over with Noah and his family in the flood in chapter 6. Why? Because he's grieved that his world has turned to nothing but evil. And everything that he's made is meant to be for his glory, is meant to be for our joy. And it has gone into chaos. Starts over with Noah and his family. This is the movement of the, of the scriptures. He starts over with Noah and his family, but it doesn't take very long, and it goes off the rails again. And so in chapter 12 of Genesis, we see that God comes to a man named Abram, and he says, listen, I know it's broken. I know it's going badly, but we're going to roll out the kingdom. We're going to bring the kingdom to bear. We're going to do this thing. We're going to bring the kingdom to the world. I'm going to use you. We're going to launch this rescue mission. And and it continues on. He launches this people called the Israelites. The Jewish people are established and God does miraculous work on their behalf. And he blesses them. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he does amazing things through the book of Exodus and and even on into Deuteronomy. And like there's these crazy things that he does that, that he shows up for his people and he's making them a people He rescues them out of Egypt. He gives them the law, right, which sometimes we look at as a negative thing, right? God's law, his rules, but it's not a negative thing. Rather, when God gives the law, he's not trying to take from us. You understand that? When God gives you rules, he tells you don't do this or don't do this until this or don't live this way. He's not trying to take from us. Rather, he is trying to lead us into life, meaning the law is the way in which the kingdom is supposed to work. The law is given as a good framework for how our lives are supposed to go. This is how God's kingdom should be lived out. And if we do it, his kingdom will be fleshed out. But guess what? We can't do it. And neither could they. And so he brings the sacrificial system. What does that mean? It means they were, they were c- commanded and instructed to kill animals instead of dying themselves. That in order to be in fellowship and relationship with God, 
Blood had to be shed. We talked about that on Good Friday. And what is, so he builds in this system of sacrifices where they kill animals in place of themselves so their sins can be forgiven. And all throughout that history, and on and on it goes, meanwhile, prophets are in the background and in the foreground saying, hey, one day a Savior is going to come. One day a Messiah is going to come. One day God's going to bring his kingdom, and he's going to set everything right, and he's going to wipe every tear from every eye, and he's going to bring his kingdom to bear, and it's going to be amazing. One day this Messiah will come. One day the kingdom will come. And then hundreds of years later, this guy from the woods eating bugs comes out and says, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. And then Jesus shows up. And he says, indeed, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus begins to launch into a ministry that is incredible. He shows up and he says, the kingdom is here. But instead of demanding a throne, instead of saying the kingdom is here, give me a throne and and everybody worship me, he says, I've not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This doesn't make any sense. This is not what the people thought it would be. However, it is indeed what the prophets said would come. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus launches his ministry by rolling up to the temple and they're all worshiping and talking about that Savior that's going to come one day. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord, he rolls, he reads this passage from Isaiah. This is a boss move. If you like, this is awesome. Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to declare to the world the day of the Lord's favor is at hand. And he goes, You guess what? This is happening right now. Jesus says, I am that man. I am that Savior. I am here. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the dude, and sits down. That's a boss move. That's a mic drop moment. It is amazing. But listen to what Jesus says his kingdom is going to be like. It's not about this throne and everybody worshiping him. He says, rather, I'm going to come to those who are suffering, and I'm going to bless them. I'm going to come to those who are trapped in their sin, and I'm going to set them free. I'm going to come to those who are sick, and people won't even look at them. They've been in quarantine their whole life. And I'm going to come to them, and I'm going to heal them. Those who are blind, I'm going to give them sight. Jesus starts to, and, and he doesn't just say it. He begins to do it. The Gospels are full of stories of him displaying his power. That's what Peter's talking about. I saw this majesty on display. I saw the power of Jesus. It's awesome. And the reason Peter saw it is because somewhere along the way, Jesus began to call people to follow him. And some of those people, that ragtag bunch, Peter was among them. And Peter saw this man display this power over and over again. He sees him doing all of this stuff, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, setting sinners free, forgiving them. I mean, like really, really bad sinners, right? Like prostitutes and tax collectors, the worst of the worst. He sees him feed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He sees him walk on water. He tells the storm to stop storming, and the storm listens. It's incredible. It's an incredible life of power and majesty. And yet, it's it's not quite what everybody expected, but it's exactly what the prophets had been saying. It's exactly what the prophets of God have been saying for hundreds of years. Jesus fulfills well over a hundred very specific prophecies that have been given for hundreds and even thousands of years before his birth. Jesus shows up and begins to check them off one by one in miraculous ways. It's incredible. You should just read from a historical vantage point the things that were written about the Messiah and the way that Jesus fulfills them is incredible. And Peter is there for almost all of it. And this is what he's talking about here in this letter. See, he doesn't see it fully in the moment when he's there. He confesses Jesus. He knows 
he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't quite understand fully what that means. But, but this is what Peter's saying is, listen, I didn't just make this stuff up. I'm a fisherman. I'm just telling you what I saw, and what I saw was, was the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't follow cleverly devised myth. Our faith is not some cleverly devised myth. It's not some cleverly devised scheme to get a bunch of people to believe. It has lasting power in the world. It has an incredible testimony in the world. And, and he goes on to say in verse 19, and we have this prophetic word even more fully confirmed. See, Peter knew the prophecies. He grew up a Jew. He'd heard about that the Messiah was going to come, and he had seen Jesus do miracle after miracle, and then he saw him transcendent on the mountain, and he believed. In fact, he was the one that, that said, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, yes, and on this confession, I'll build my church. We know those stories, and yet he only sort of believed. He only sort of had put his faith because we know that when Jesus was arrested, Peter was still a coward. And he denied him three times. Perhaps you're here today and you're a lot like Peter in the sense that you confess that you believe in Jesus. That you would say you're a Christian. You, you might even say that you're going to heaven because you prayed a prayer at some point in your life. Like you know how to answer the questions rightly. You know, you would say that Christianity is your religion. You would say that you're going to heaven because of that prayer. But, but let me ask you this. Is there new life in you? Is, is there a transformed new life? Is the Spirit of God evident in you? Have you been set free? Have you been born again? Because Peter knew Jesus, and he saw his miracles, but he didn't really know the fullness of who this Savior was and what he was offering until what? Until Jesus got out of the grave and started talking to Peter again. And Jesus, Peter had saw Jesus die, and he, he'd seen him bury his body, and he knew that he was dead. It wasn't kind of dead. It wasn't a little bit dead. He was dead dead. He knew that. And then they go to the grave on that Easter Sunday and praise God, the angel says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Amen? It's incredible. And he says, like he told you he would. Right? And it still takes some time for Peter to get this. Oh, this is what God has been doing. Oh, God's not just kind of making the world better. He's not just kind of bringing his, his kingdom to pass. He's fully coming in. He's fully bringing victory so much so that he conquered death. Death didn't conquer Jesus. Through his death, Jesus conquered death. And it's an amazing story. And it transformed Jesus. Peter, or it transformed Peter, rather. Before the resurrection, Peter kind of knew. He had a confessional, cultural Christianity kind of faith. But after the resurrection, he's transformed. And he knew it like nothing else that he'd ever known. And the Spirit came to him. And, and in the moment, we sing this song, uh, and the church of Christ was born and the spirit lit the flame. It's referring to Acts uh, chapters 1 and 2, when the, when, the, when the spirit comes at Pentecost and it begins to launch the church. And there's all this chaos and confusion. And Peter gets up in that moment and begins to put all this together and declare it for everyone on hand that, hey, this is what our God has been doing. And it all culminates and it all finds its fulfillment in this man named Jesus, whom you killed. Peter begins to boldly preach the gospel, so much so that it finds him in prison here 30 years later after multiple beatings and other imprisonments, and yet he's here about to die, and he's preaching still. He's writing to his church still because the resurrection completely transformed this man named Peter. Not only did he transform Peter, but he used Peter and others like him, the disciples, to transform the whole world. History pivoted on this incredible movement. 
the nobodies that God took and transformed in history. Listen, here's the deal. The personal and radical and lasting transformations of Peter and other men like him stand as demanding evidence for proof of the resurrection. You're here, you're skeptical, you're not sure. You can actually take a look, take an honest look, study the history, and you have to do something with what happens in the world around this time of Jesus of Nazareth. The historical evidence of a radical shift in worldview, the Jews' day, like the day of worship changed, martyrs begin to increase, and they're sticking to the story about a resurrected Jew named Jesus. Listen, they demand, all of this demands a look from you if you're a skeptic. I've linked a couple books in your digital bulletin on the app. Uh, if you don't have the app, that's okay. Uh, the, the book I would recommend to you, if that's you and you're a skeptic, is it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God by, by N.T. Wright. It's a scholarly look at what is going on in that moment, in the first century, around the time of Jesus. It's incredible. And, and here's the deal. These are real men who have been changed radically by an event in history, and that is Jesus' resurrection. So what could take a rugged, cowardly fisherman and turn him into a bold witness of Jesus Christ who gives the rest of his life, literally, he's lived like 30 or 32 years or so after Jesus' resurrection, continuing to preach. What could turn him into, from that coward, that fisherman, into a man who writes from jail because he's serving Jesus and he's still serving Jesus even in jail? That is the resurrection. Easter changes everything. It doesn't just get us our ticket out of hell and into heaven. It doesn't just get us to where we're forgiven and then, you know, put on standby until we go back, you know, until we're, you know, transformed into glory on that day. Like, that's going to happen. But in the meantime, we are changed radically so. And Peter says that we would do well to pay attention to this word that is now more fully confirmed, he says. They had some prophecies. They're seeing all this happen. He says, we now have it even more fully confirmed because of the resurrection. And all that prophecy being fulfilled in Jesus, it means that we look at the world and we cry out because of the pain, the struggle, the suffering, and he says, I hear you. Listen, you have suffered. You're trapped in your sin. You wondered if God sees. You've wondered if God cares. It is Jesus on the cross and Jesus out of the grave. God saying, I hear you and I care and I have provided. Here it is, the best of heaven. And you say, well, there's still suffering in the world. It's still broken. And I, I would say, yeah. So we got to get to work. We got to get to work. Because it's through the resurrection that, that he transforms actual real people like you and I. Not just the Peters and pastors and clergymen of the world. He transforms actual real people like you. You say, well, I just work a job like in an office or I, I'm a laborer or I work at a bank or how does he want to use me? Yeah, no, no, it's all of us. He's transformed us. And John Piper says that it's through faith we're plugged into like the 10,000 volt outlet of Jesus' resurrection. You realize the Bible says that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives where? In us. That's crazy, church. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so we become the kingdom advancing in the world. Amen? What this means is because of the resurrection, all of the promises of God, it says in, in 2 Corinthians, find their yes in Jesus. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The resurrection validates all of the Bible's prophecies, all of God's claims of love that the world has questioned. How could a loving God do this or that? The resurrection validates all of that 
And all that Jesus says about himself is validated. He is vindicated fully from the humiliated man who died amongst thieves on the cross on that Friday. Jesus is now resurrected and stands vindicated and validated as the son of God that he claimed he would be. See, here's the deal. You can't just shrug off Easter. You can't just shrug off the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Either Jesus, C.S. Lewis says, either Jesus is who he said he was or he's a maniac. He can't just be a good teacher. He can't just be the, the leader of some faith that started. No, no, no. He's either a maniac in which we, could, we should walk away, or he is exactly who he said he was. He's the son of God. Nobody does what he did. Nobody gets out of the grave like Jesus did. So you've got to make a decision. Will I follow this man who stands in victory, or will I continue in my rebellion? Peter says, you would do well to pay attention. You would do well to make note of all that has happened. You would do well to cling to this word. He's talking about the Bible. He's talking about God's word. He says, he spoke. He said he would come, and he came. He said he would die, and he died. He said he would rise, and he rose. Guess what? He said he's coming again, and he will. And he will. So he says, what do you do? You cling tightly to this. You pay attention to it. It's like a lamp in the darkness. Y'all feel the darkness? You tired of the darkness? Get your nose in here. Cling tightly to it. In a world washing quickly away, we have firm ground to stand upon, and it is because Jesus has more fully confirmed the prophecy and all that God has said. He's more fully confirmed God's love for us that indeed the resurrection changes everything. It's the beginning of God remaking creation the way that it was supposed to be. It's not just this one moment in time where he suspends reality. It is him flipping the world back into what it meant. He meant for it to be. It means everything for us. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If you're here for self-help, you think Christianity is just a good way to live, you should leave. Go ahead. It's a really bad idea. Because if Jesus didn't get out of the grave, man, we're to be pitied, Paul says. But he did. He did. In Romans 4, it says that he was delivered up for our trespasses, he died for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. That without the resurrection, the cross does not have the power for us to be forgiven. So here's just a few things that Easter means for us, that Easter has validated for us. It means that the forgiveness of sins is actually possible. It's actually possible. It doesn't matter what you've done. You say, well, you don't know me. It doesn't matter. If you turn to Jesus in repentance, you can be forgiven. The full penalty of sin and for sin was laid on Jesus, and he broke free in victory on Easter morning. Forgiveness of sins is possible because of Easter. New birth is possible because of Easter. You can be born again, meaning a new slate. Your sin, if you were in Jesus, is, is far removed as east is from the west. Kiddos, say east from the west. How far is the east from the west, kids? It's confusing, isn't it? Because they don't ever really meet, and it's like, yeah, exactly, it's gone. Your sin is gone forever, as far removed as east is from the west, meaning it will never come back around. Like 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that anyone who is in Christ, behold, they are new. They are a new creation. All things have passed away. They have become new. Easter means that you can have your heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. God doesn't want to just change your behavior. He wants to change your desires. Kiddos say, my heart was like a rock. A rock. What's a rock like? It's hard, isn't it? It's cold. Outside of Christ, that's us. You'll never get better 
just by trying to get better, checking off some moral list of self-help. But in Jesus, new birth is available, and he says that I'll take your heart of stone and I'll put in a heart of flesh. Christianity is not about just, okay, I'm going to be a good person now. I'm going to follow these rules. No, no, no. He takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. What's that mean? He doesn't want to just change our actions. He wants to change our desires. And he does change our desires, church. He does. That's the glory of the resurrection. It means there's no condemnation. No more can you be called blank. No more can you be called worthless or hopeless or a drunk or a, a, a harlot or whatever the world has laid upon you. There's no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We're given a new name. Easter means we have a living hope. We just sang about it. What that means is our Savior can never die again. Our Savior can never die again. He's never retiring. He's not up for re-election. He's never stepping off the throne for any reason. He is our living hope. His rule is secure. We can rest in him. Easter means we have resurrection bodies awaiting for us. The, 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 the sting and the power of death is taken away at Easter. It means that one day Jesus will indeed wipe away every tear from every eye. One day every bit of justice, every ounce of justice will be doled out as Jesus' kingdom is fully consummated. So you can be forgiven. You can have new life. You can be set free from addiction. You can see your life restored from the sin mess that you've made. Not all the consequences can be taken away, maybe, but you can have new life. You can have joy, and all of the penalty is paid because Jesus got out of the grave. You can be welcomed into heaven as a sinner who has no right to be there, but because of Jesus' resurrection. You can have a life of purpose. Your life can have meaning. Even your suffering can have meaning because Jesus is out of the grave. Here's the deal, church. Repent and believe in Jesus. He is the Lord of all. If you're here, you've never done that. Man, what a day to turn to Jesus. What a day to turn to Jesus. What a day for new birth. You can, you can be born again. You can have your sins forgiven and be a child of God today. It's really simple. It says when you realize, Romans 9 says that when you realize that, that you need a Savior because you're a sinner, are you there? Do you realize you're a, savior, a sinner and needs a Savior? If you're there and you confess that Jesus is that Savior because God raised him from the dead, and you make him the Lord of your life, you can be saved. So that's you acknowledging you're a sinner who needs a Savior and acknowledging that Jesus is indeed that Savior. It says you will be saved. You can be born again. If you, if you're, if you just said yes and amen to that in your heart, you're confessing that in your mouth. Like, you could be saved right now. Like, it doesn't, you don't have to come to the altar. You don't have, like, you could be saved. Like, saved, saved. Like, new life, new birth, sins forgiven, saved. On your way to heaven, totally transformed, Saved. That can happen because Jesus is out of the grave. He holds the power, not us. Not, it doesn't have to see if you can do better and get, no, it's in Jesus. Church, rejoice. We have a living hope, amen? He is risen. He is risen. Let's pray. Let's pray. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna worship some more. We're not done. We're gonna blow the roof all this place. We're gonna, we're gonna worship. We're gonna end with celebrating that Jesus is alive. We have a risen Savior. We have a living hope, amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. That's all we, like, thank you. Help us to grasp it. Help us to celebrate. Send your spirit to save souls. Send your spirit to revive dead hearts. Help us, Jesus. You're alive. We confess it, and we invite you to rock our worlds, to change our hearts, to totally transform us here right now in this church in 2021. May your spirit be at work. 
May you move powerfully among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.